equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now Displayed with good intentions Welcome to 1 of 200, the independent politics and media podcast. I've managed to slow myself down since yesterday when I said that faster than I've maybe ever said it in my life. This is our current events episode. Uh, yesterday, we had an episode about the information space uh, around the genocide in Gaza with Olivia Jutel and Emirakti. But today, we're back to plain old current events in New Zealand politics for the most part. Uh, but I do feel like we need to mention Gaza again in case you haven't caught the latest news. It's getting even worse. The IDF have now taken out all of the Gazan telecommunications. It's completely dark there and started what's being called like the largest uh, airstrike and bombing campaign during the entry of their ground forces. It's fucking horrific. Um, I've been on social media this morning pointing out how none of our media are covering it. Uh, it is basically not on the front page of any of our major outlets, except for a couple that have in their breaking news uh, column IDF updates straight from uh, the Israeli military. So fuck you all. This is just the most insane shit. Um, and you make me sick. But that out of the way, uh, welcome to my co-hosts. Uh, we've got Stephanie uh, here again with us. Good morning, Stephanie. Howdy. Yeah, um, but but peeved. I've I've been trying to craft pithy tweets in my head about uh, Israel Palestine, and I'm just like, at this point, if you're still clinging to the idea that this is about fucking self-defense or safety for the government of Israel, I I cannot convince you. I'm sorry, we are past the point where you can cling to that bullshit. So, yeah, angry. That's me. <laughs> and also joined by journalist and lawyer, Oli Nias. Welcome back, Oli. It's been a little while. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and, yeah, second everything you said just then, um, shout out to those who have helped um, organise some of these demonstrations today. Hopefully that sends a message that most people are not at all happy with our government's weak position on this. Yeah. So we're recording on Saturday morning. Uh, there are protests throughout the country. Uh, this afternoon, um, this is the third week of protests. The turnout has been uh, fantastic uh, and hasn't been covered at all by any of our major media outlets. Yeah, again, fuck you. And if you're in media, um, if you're a journalist or reporter um, who is, you know, not not being able to set the, the news, the news lines, you, you're just having to chug away, fucking speak up from inside your organizations um, because your leadership are making you complicit in a genocide. Bad news. Bad news for everyone. Also, just want to, sorry, just jumping in because I love derailing this. Um, at the same time, what we do have a lot of headlines about is Winston Peters spreading fucking disinformation and dog whistling to the, the mosque attacks was a false flag crowd. And if you're in our media and you're going, well, those are two completely different stories. They're the same fucking story, guys. Like the dehumanization of Muslims and Palestinians in particular is what's driving a huge amount of the sentiment around what's happening in Gaza. So, like, join the really obvious dots, please. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's all pretty clear. And we talked about that a lot yesterday on, on our uh, Issues podcast. Fair play to a couple of uh, commentators and journalists uh, around the Winston Peters stuff. They've they've come out pretty strongly. Uh, Lloyd Burr in particular just slammed Winston Peters in his, his opinion piece. But it really does feel in the last couple of weeks since the election, like fucking nothing is, is going on. The gallery is just... Uh, Persona non grata. Uh, the the best that a lot of them can um, dredge up is these complaints about how long it's taking to do a full count of the vote, which is fucking pathetic. And you know, with people like Patty Gower uh, complaining about it basically daily, is helping to drive this undermining of the electoral system, specifically now targeting uh, people who sign up on the day. It's not about democracy at all. It's about it's about uh, driving down the vote. It's about yeah. stopping people who are like on the on the edges of our democracy, who are maybe disengaged from being able to engage uh, with any semblance of accessibility. Is there something that, that he's arguing? Uh, Gower? No, Gower is he... just like having a go at the Electoral Commission. Um, oh, right. But now it's coming out from like right-wing operators. I think Luxon was talking about, oh, we might need uh, to look at Election Day signups. Seymour also had a line about how... Um, early voting or needing to enroll um, on the day proves that you're disorganized and, you know, obvious dog whistle. Therefore, we shouldn't let young people Mm -hmm. or disenfranchised people vote. It's so fucking transparent, guys. Come on. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they've got nothing else to do because during this period, Luxon has taken, apparently, all the coalition negotiations up to Auckland and the gallery are stranded in Wellington. Uh, couldn't possibly uh, do anything about that. All their um, access journalism sources have dried up. There's nothing coming out at all. We, we know basically nothing except that Winston Peters is posting this like horrific conspiracy-led disinformation on Twitter, um, maybe to try and flex on the people he's trying to make a coalition with. Like, you can't stop me from being a chaos merchant. And we're probably not going to know anything happening in there for another week. And uh, it's it's not good. It's not good. Mm. What has your feeling been, Stephanie, around this negotiations process um, and the seeming inability of our political journalists to even do baseline analysis it seems because you don't have to have like the information you can you can still talk about this stuff in fairness i i I prefer them not saying anything to suddenly all those pieces that started coming out the day after the election like what is national gonna axe hey guys maybe a piece that you could have put out a week ago uh when you knew what their policies were um and you could have been doing that analysis i think I'm torn on it. Obviously, the vote count needs to take as long as it takes because that's how you have a functioning democracy. But I also don't know that we were ever very well served by having the entire gallery pack standing outside one elevator in the beehive, desperately analysing what type of biscuit Jacinda Ardern was taking to, to Winston's negotiation table that day. I don't know that we got much more analysis and yeah i mean guys get on get on the get on the train you know what i'd love to see i'd love to see all of the gallery on the um overlander whatever kiwi rails intensely too long train between wellington and auckland is let's just have a road trip um of the whole gallery up to auckland and then report it from there and I think the idea was that the location is secret as though there are any secrets in politics and as though you guys don't know exactly where things are happening because somebody is leaking to you from some caucus. Um, So I don't, I don't think negotiations have started yet. I think while we're on such a knife edge of the special votes 
always tend to swing leftwards. Um, Port Waikato by-election, we can assume, is a done deal. I mean, especially since no other serious party decided to contest it because everyone knows it's pretty much a waste of time. Um, I, I just really liked a, a bleat I saw today on the old blue sky about how... Have, have you noticed how no one's reported on a ram raid in several weeks? Yeah, pretty funny. Huh? The crime narrative's gone headline. out the fucking window, isn't it? Where did those go? It's, be- it's almost it's because like all the, it's because all the fifteen-year-olds that would be doing ram writing are actually waiting to find out on the outcome of the um, special votes to see what impact <laughs> that will have on the sentencing regime. It's a risky, Rational risky act of crime right theory. Now. Yeah, exactly. they're like, oh no, Mark Mitchell is coming and he's going to take <laughs> away all our civil rights. We'd best not ram write anymore. Chums. He's going to make us put on foundation. Yeah. So I don't know. I I really just think they could find better things to do with their time. Like, and I know a lot of a lot of the gallery journalists actually love doing big in depth nerdy data visualization pieces. So come on, team, put put your minds to that. Give us some actual political analysis since you don't have live tweeting waiting outside a caucus room to fill your boots. You're down there in in Wellington as well, Ollie. Um... Yeah, What's your yeah, yeah, it's 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 electric. Uh, you know, everyone's paused. No one's doing anything. Everyone's <laughs> waiting for something to happen. I know. I think you know. I, I my sense is that it's is one of those rare times where. Well, I think it shows that the political journalists don't really have a lot to talk about in terms of the usual way of com- commenting on politics, which is observing the machinations of the political parties and the kind of horse race politics style analysis. Because there isn't really much that could be said. Um, Right now, but I think that's is a real opportunity for these bigger conversations to take place about you know beyond just what's going to happen when Winston Peters decides who he wants to go with, but about these bigger questions of strategy. You know what the next three years, three, six, nine years are going to look like. Um, so I, I guess I'm not too um, too mad at the journalists for not saying more right now. I think I'd agree with Stephanie that it's better they keep quiet than say anything too too stupid. <laughs> See, I, maybe I just have a um, a higher opinion. Um, and I, I think that they are not capable of saying something too stupid. That's a lie. I'm lying. I, that's, a, <laughs> that's not what I think at all. In the meantime, though, some of those conversations are happening uh, around what the next three, six, et cetera, years look like. We've been having discussions on the podcast about what that looks like for the left, you know, in the uh, preceding weeks of the election and then during the live stream on election night, we're talking about this quite a lot. Ollie, you've you've written a piece which has drawn some criticism. Uh, but before we get into what you were tackling, uh, let's talk about this Jack Tame piece, mm. uh, which is really disappointing and and really confusing to me, given he's usually a lot, his critical analysis tends to be a lot better than this, uh, but fits right into that slot of saying something pretty stupid uh, about the coalition negotiations. Stephanie, I'm going to hand over to you. Oh, no. I just had a, a thought about exactly what this post feels like. It feels like the good old days of New Zealand Twitter, and by good I mean the worst days of New Zealand Twitter, when there'd be <laughs> that lull around Christmas, New Year's, where no one's doing anything and none of us are at work, but also you're just kind of drifting from awful family event to awful family event, and someone would kick off a gigantic argument over trivialities, like not even pineapple on pizza level trivialities and it would just explode because everyone had so much energy to burn off and nothing to to do with it that's what this piece feels like is like jack went you know what i don't have a lineup of finance spokespeople and some spreadsheets that craig rennie's developed for me to to do some hard-hitting stuff i'm just gonna i'm just gonna poke the beehive by uh sorry that was an unintentional pun 
I'm just going to poke the uh, wasp's nest by trotting out the usual why won't the Greens go with National? And it's it's such shallow analysis, which also veers into some respectability politics. Now, Ollie, I understand you haven't read it, so just take everything I'm saying as complete gospel. Talking about the Greens celebrating um, our electorate wins, but then... <sighs> talking about us languishing in opposition, one of my least favourite phrases in New Zealand politics, because first major point, you can get a shitload done in opposition, and the Greens, historically, have done a shitload in opposition. The idea that the basically one team gets to be government and everyone else should just pack up and go home is so infuriating to me, just in a fundamental democratic way. Like, I, I was ranting about this to my partner, and he just turned around and said, yeah, I mean, you can't do anything in opposition. That's why Three Waters was such a raving success for Labour. Because, you know, what could National do except for completely dog whistle blow up some fairly sensible, practical, freaking infrastructure reforms? And then, why not a teal deal? Um, if climate change is so serious, then surely you'd work with anyone to get progress on it. It's like, well, I'm going to be really clear here. I'm speaking as an individual political ranty person. I do not have insight into broader Green Party strategy. So if anyone clips this and is like, that's what the Greens want to do, they can shut up. Um, <laughs> I have always been an advocate, and this is true when I was a, a Labour Party activist as well, of the idea that you have to have a longer term view of it. If the Greens were to support Luxon as Prime Minister now, with all the damage that his government is going to do for climate action, for the environment, and for our most marginalised communities, then all we do is mean he gets six or nine years as Prime Minister and our vote tanks because our base go, well, fuck you. Whereas if we can get our crap together now, and if Labour can get their crap together now, and I'm veering into my criticisms of all these pieces as well, there's a much better chance of ensuring that Luxon is only Prime Minister for three years and can't do as much damage. And hopefully the ACT Party also implodes. And then we get the longer term, better progress. Now, that's not ruling out the classic old uh, John Key government, Green Party memorandum of understanding, getting a few policy points over the line. But I think it's such a reach to suggest that the Green Party could in any way feasibly support with confidence and supply, a Christopher Luxon-led national party, that it just, it's so dumb that it pains me when otherwise serious journalists put pen to paper. The thing that that really got me uh, is a particular line, let me just find it. Yeah. Um, while he's talking about how serious climate change is and shouldn't you do anything to uh, save this, save us from this existential threat, he says, the immediate effusive dismissal of a teal deal suggests the Green Party membership is actually more concerned with maintaining the purity of their platform than the future of the planet. Get fucked. So this yeah, get fucked, Jack. He's doing this respectability politics thing where he's kind of implying that there are probably sensible people in the Green Party who do want to do a deal with Christopher freaking Luxon, but it's those Green Party members. They're just so ideological. They just won't do anything if it touches their purity politics. And it's like, we we are the party who did a MOU with John Key's government. Like, yeah. Luxon ruled us out. <laughs> what are we supposed to do, Jack? It feels uh, so kind of like um out of like out of out of step with just any reality. Like aside from the question of like in theory, what should the Greens do? It just seems like a pointless piece because there's just no world in which the Greens base 
membership of any kind wants that. And I think like the experience of top shows that, right? Like top essentially was a teal party, you know, the whole teal card thing. And clearly the base for that's quite low. And you hear stories of people who, I think I heard this from a Green Party person actually about maybe people, business people that talk to James Shaw. I, I probably screwing up the story entirely, but saying, oh, you know, if only you abandon your social stuff, you know, maybe you get more votes from people like me. And then the Green Party person who may or may be James Shaw says, well, would you vote for me? And the answer is always no, I'll vote national. And so it's like this is a mythic voter base in the middle that um, is willing to prioritise um, green issues while also um, supporting some other kind of economic programs. So it's just like, what's what's the point? And I think it, I, I hope... Um, People don't think that's what I was arguing with my piece, but we'll, we'll come back to that. I, I think probably the one kernel of truth in there, though, is it does get at the fact that the fact that the Greens are a left party and are not willing to do a deal with National quite rightly does affect the kind of ways they can exercise leverage. And so for a political journalist like Jack Tame, who primarily sees things through this kind of quite narrow lens of trading off policies um, in a coalition environment, um, it would look like the Greens have, have zero leverage. And I think there's a kernel of truth in there, which we can get into, but I agree with you totally that this article sounds like from um, your description of it misses the point. Yeah, and, and I I did have, sorry, I have a prepared rant in my head because this is what I do. Um, I think that going broader than Jack Thames, who a lot of the other people who often bring up this point about the teal deal, is you never hear it applied to ACT, you never hear it applied to Labour. Why don't Labour compromise their principles? and order to get some progress from Christopher Luxon like that we we just dismiss that out of hand I think the fact that the Greens are to a greater or lesser extent depending on who you talk to in the party but at a fundamental level are an anti-capitalist party we understand that you don't actually get good climate action um, simply by working within the existing power structures of capitalism and um, people may be more or less uh, on the reforming side of the spectrum in terms of how you can work with business or how you can support some businesses or versus just simply throwing out the entire system but to even be as anti-capitalist as the green party has been uh, is such a threat to the status quo that i think that's what has to be destroyed that is where it it comes from is but you have to say you'll work with national because otherwise we'd have to acknowledge that when national says the right words about caring about climate change or says the right words about caring about environmental destruction it is fundamentally not true it is fundamentally not going to happen. Um, the reason they want a party that just focuses on the green stuff and not on um, the social justice weird stuff, which is basically what Nicola Willis has been passive aggressively subtweeting me about for the entire um, election because she was the candidate in Ohario. The reason they want that is because they want all of the feel good of we got the community out for a beach cleanup, but we're not going to do anything about the companies that created the litter that forced us to have to do a beach cleanup. They want the feel good green stuff without ever addressing the fundamental causes of those problems. Yeah, I think uh, it really is a frustrating thing for me. And, and also it just gives the lie to all the commentators that are working in this kind of bizarre discourse, the way that it, this is only ever applied. This logic is only ever applied uh, to the Green Party. Everyone was fucking crowing about how well ACT has done in opposition uh, in the lead up to this election. That's all that we've talked about this year. And suddenly it's not, it's not real. That's not something that can happen. Why aren't ACT talking with Labour 
to get leverage over national. You know, if they if they if they were doing that, then they'd be able to get more of their stuff out of national and they'd be able to push away Winston Peters. Like that's it. And that's actually a strategic question for them in a way that it, it isn't for the Greens. Uh, because the act because the act part are amoral and have no real beliefs. So they would be able to do that uh theoretically to an extent mm. that uh the Greens cannot. Um I also yeah, I think bizarre. Oh sorry Carl, I was just gonna say I think a lot of this kind of commentary, it, you know, there's like no analysis of actual power going on. And, you know, like they assume, for example, and I think some people are like in the, some of the Twitter discourse on the left, I think also around the Greens stuff has also made a similar mistake um, in assuming that say like the left and the right are in equal positions in terms of what their possibilities are within the MMP environment, because the act, you know, it advocates either for this, well, the right generally broadly advocates for the status quo, which is always an appealing option for those trying to form a government or those in power because it involves doing nothing. All the changes are those that benefit the powerful and wealthy. So if you're the Green Party or the left more broadly, right, as you say, Stephanie, you're running on an anti-capitalist platform. Those That's a platform that involves a huge shit fight, right? Um, and that means you're in a very different position to act, which, yeah, if it gets into a shit fight and knows it's backed by, you know, the business, business NZ, Fonterra, um, you know, the well, literally the wealthiest people in New Zealand, as we saw from the um, coverage of political donations. And so like any analysis that's not taking in those factors is just like, it's kind of make-believe really. Yeah. I My other feeling is that it seems that some in the kind of political commentary world, political reporting world, are suddenly very cognizant of the fact that they've helped enable what the next three years is going to look like and it's not good. And, you know, that's everything from uh, the puff pieces for the ACT Party uh, before the last about month of the election when they started taking aim at the list. It's the, fa- the utter failure to interrogate Nationals' policies until Craig Rennie started doing the work. The inability to make any of that stick. Constant uh, boosterism of Christopher Luxon for almost the last five years, even before he was like an MP. Uh, all of the stuff that almost everyone in the gallery um, and the political journalism space has uh, indulged in at some point. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait, what the fuck is going to happen here? What if Winston Peters ends up like having some semblance of power? He's doing conspiracy theories about the Christchurch shooter. What the fuck's going to mm-hmm. happen? And they're desperately trying to find a way to blame someone else for that. Like, oh, no, it's the Greens' fault because uh, they didn't uh, throw themselves in front of uh, Christopher Luxon to save him from Winston Peters. Mm. I think we'll see a fair bit of that uh, as the reality comes crashing home for the broadly liberal, you know, and also some somewhat left-wing sometimes uh journalists who are able to set the narratives in the media because they fucked up yeah i think the um it's interesting that what what issues um have gotten you know pushback from um mainstream political journalists and i think it's interesting that like the winston peters conspiracy theory stuff that does like push a button um and it upsets like the sensibilities of um the press gallery um this idea that you know the these these conspiracy theories, but like just the act, the basic policy platform of the act party, which is likely to, you know, probably get a, re- a, a decent amount over the line with national hasn't earned anything in the same degree of critical coverage, you know, like it's, it's shocking. Like I think peak New Zealanders are going to be in for a bit of a rude awakening once they actually realize what's on the table here. 
Um, but it's interesting that those kind of policies, which are pretty shocking, you know, the huge cuts that have been talked about, are kind of talked about as if that's a respectable thing for any government to do. Uh, and it takes a con- kind of conspiracy theory to cross the cross the Rubicon. Yeah, it's it's been really tough and like just in the social media space um, to even get across the idea that this could be worse than what happened under Ruth Richardson and Bolger. But that's that's how far out some of Act's policies are. That's how it like it's cutting edge neoliberal stuff. People have said, oh, no, we can't really compare Luxon to trust. But I think with Act alongside them, you absolutely can and should be. Um, and with Luxon talking about a mini budget um, coming up as soon as the government is formed before Christmas, we're really going to get uh, that's going to be the first real indication of the magnitude of of what's likely to happen. Um, mm. I am I am all for being um, I'm not going to say pleasantly surprised, but surprised that it's not as bad as I think it is. But I'm not hopeful about that at all. And anyone who's not understanding the potential intent there. Uh, with Luxon having visited, you know, some of the same organizations that set Truss's policy platform during that that period um, in the last couple of years, some of those think tanks, he was visiting them for policy advice. You know, like it's, and, and act as to the right of that. You know, they're either going to be delivering what they've been gathering information for or they're not. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's, uh, we do no one any favors by refusing to include that as part of our analysis. It's not good. <laughs> it's not. And I have to say that that mini budget, I suspect it'll come in and I suspect um, there's a lot of projects and a lot of work that's already on the chopping block. I have friends in the public service who have already been told to down tools on the different projects they're working on because the assumption is just we're going to be cancelled anyway. So I guess we might as well save that expenditure from our budgets because and and now those people are sitting there with nothing officially to do because they were hired to do a job that they're now being told yeah we're throwing all of that away yeah and we're warned about this like everyone knew about this um well no that's not fair the labor and uh, other parties uh started saying they're going to cut all these jobs in the last couple of weeks before the election um and the media kind of picked up some of that but this mm. was very clear probably from about april this year it's it's been pretty obvious if you look at the policies yeah. And there's such a such a lack of, I think, um, scrutiny as to like the whole like just the credibility of the economics behind it. As you said before, it's kind of comes down to people like Craig Rennie to do some of this, right? But like there's just a few lone journalists who are able, who have the kind of any kind of in the view of economics of their own to criticize this stuff. Because like as the experience always, all this cost cutting won't actually cut costs. It will cut costs maybe on the government's balance sheets in the short term, but will blow things out in the long term, right? I've even been hearing a lot of stories from people in the public sector lately, just with the government's you know, pay freeze, right? How inefficient it's ended up being because what you've got is people just move jobs to get better pay, which then hollows out the ex- experience and within departments, which results in more people needing to be hired. And so you get a public sector that's just not as good at doing what it does, that costs more, and it's just like a vicious, stupid preventable cycle but then how else we're meant to complain about consultancies <laughs> you know it's like, it is it is that was like you know one of the for me the two most frustrating contradictions within the national party's policy platform and i know it's an, it's pointless to complain about contradictions but one was this idea we're going to cut costs in the public sector and we're going to simultaneously rally against consultants which have arisen due to the kind of 
policies with the public sector that national promotes while also cutting the public sector and not experiencing any like loss to our um, public services. The other one was their whole argument about the cost of living, um, their the critique of Labor's GST of fruit and veggies policy, which might be reasonable criticisms to make of it, but their argument that, oh, well, those savings will just be part, just be absorbed by the supermarkets, they'll gobble it up. But then the National Party's entire cost of living platform, other than the tax cuts, was on, we'll cut, re- we'll cut regulations and taxes on business and the businesses will pass the savings on to consumers. Mm. It's entirely contradictory. We won't hike petrol taxes because, you know, that'll make petrol prices come down. That thing that has ever happened in my lifetime. Yeah, we're going to get rid of um, regulations in the in the renting space uh, and landlords will pass it on. And then ask point blank, will you pass it on? I'm like, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> you know, and like, it's just all very clear. They're mendacious. They're horrible. Uh, they don't make sense. There's no there's no heft there in the National Act parties. It's, it's horrific shit. Um, but yeah, never interrogated um, we're in for a bad time in the next three years. Uh, and the the big question for the left is what do we do about that? We're like, how do we organize? How do we push the left agenda in the face of this kind of stuff? Um, and Ollie, you you wrote a piece about this this week. I yeah, I did. I wrote a piece for the spin-off that the basic question is is you know, how do we actually how do we get um these things that we want on the left? Um and the response I think has been has been has been varied actually, and I think the response on Twitter has been different to the response I've got from people not on the internet. But I think perhaps the place to start is to clarify what I'm not saying, um, <laughs> uh, if that helps. So one is it's not an argument about saying all green voters should vote Labour, or that the Green Party should be abandoned and disestablished, or that, um, or that the left should be more like quote unquote centrist and abandon its principles. Right. The question, the starting point for me is like the left as a whole has, if we take the transformational agenda that's at the core of that, which I think is rightly described as an anti-capitalist agenda. Um, how do we achieve that within the MMP environment? Um, and I think, you know, that is, to dig into that, that is a big project, right? That's about more than winning just a few left policies. It is it is transformational and it involves, you know, redistributing, redistributing wealth and power, which means political conflict, um, taking on vested interests, getting into a fight. And I think that the basic argument is that that can only be won by, you know, winning a parliamentary majority committed to a left platform um, with a, you know, substantial social base underpinning that. Um, and that, you know, achieving that, I would say, requires, you know, political organisation, a strong left movement, which I'm sure many people in the Greens would agree with, um, and a movement that's capable of, uh, exhibiting political leadership to win a majority of people over to a left platform. And I guess the way I see it is that the dominant strategy on the left in New Zealand in recent years has been um, centred on the Green Party, um, and for very good reasons, given some of the betrayals of the many betrayals of Labour over the years. But I guess the essence of it, I think, is that I don't see any way through in terms of getting the core aspects of the Green Party's manifesto unless there is also a strong left Labour Party. And so I guess I the concern that I'm writing from is this fear that if Labour's abandoned by the people that are likely to drive these ideas and this um, political organisation, then um, it's I don't think it's in the interest of the left as a whole. And there's a kind of logic to this that we can perhaps talk through and, and some people have raised some good objections that I think are worth talking through. But yeah, I just don't see a way through without a strong Labour Party as well. And so I think that has got to be a core part of where left energies go in New Zealand. Not the only part, but a, but it's an important part of the project, I think. 
So have at so me. I guess- <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ollie, you don't want that. You don't want to invite that. Um, I guess I have just two initial broad responses. And one is to call out the idea of the dominant strategy on the left. I think we have seen left-wing people flock to the Green Party, yes, because they see the Green Party as a actual um, useful avenue for left-wing change and for putting forward progressive policies in a way that persuades people. And I think our um, election results speak for themselves. But I would question if it's a dominant strategy. I mean, there's there's still a shitload of unions out there who aren't active supporters of the Green Party. There's still a shitload of unions out there who are affiliates of the Labour Party. There are a lot of left-wing organizations who aren't particularly partisan um, in in that way. And so I my first point of as someone who has been a Labour Party activist and someone who is now a Green Party activist, I I guess I saw that as being like, well, there isn't a dominant strat the left didn't all sit down and go, right, chaps, fuck Labour, let's all join the Green Party. <laughs> I kind of wish we had. Um there's not a hive mind here. There's just people. And um, so that's that's my first kind of thing is if we're just talking about some organizations shifted their support to the Greens and some activists, self-included, shifted their support to the Greens, does that recommend does that reflect a strategy that we all decided on and which isn't a good one? I I don't think so. Um, and my second one, which is where I just get a tiny bit personal, Ollie, is um, best summed up as, do you think we didn't fucking try? Like, as someone <laughs> who was on the campaign team that got Andrew Little elected leader of the Labour Party takes no credit for what the fuck happened after he was elected because, <laughs> weirdly, all of the left-wingers got shut out of that conversation. Um, I've, I've, I've tried, mate. I've been I've been to multiple Labour Party conferences. I have seen how moribund the institution of the Labour Party is and how dedicated to not being an anti-capitalist party and to not taking strong progressive views. I mean, just we could do, Kyle, an entire episode on my personal experience watching Labour activists just try to get a simple abortion law reform remit over the fucking line and the weird, like, the thick of it in the loop office level shenanigans that happened around that. People have tried, and I don't believe that the Labour Party is changeable, honestly. I wish they were. There are a lot of good people in the Labour Party. There are a lot of very smart people in the Labour Party. They can see the same evidence, the same research, the same thinking that we can all see about how you shift political opinion for good progressive change, not not radical communist change, just good progressive even centre-left change, and they don't want to do it. Chris Hipkins did not want to run a left-wing campaign, and Grant Robertson has not wanted to pass left-wing budgets. And at some point, the individual effort and the fucking heartache of trying to move that institution has proven to be too much for a lot of people. And to then turn around and say, well, look, we we won Rongatai, but at what cost in Mangare is like, what, who, who is doing that? Who, who can we hold responsible? If not, the people making the decisions with the power in the Labour Party who just don't want to. And at what point is it on them to either change or go away and let a different organisation arise? So, yeah, I think that was where I kind of got to is I feel 
that the case you put forward in the piece assumes that the Labour Party is a constant and assumes that the Labour Party can't die um, and assumes that thus the Greens need to triangulate their position in line with the Labour Party. And and simply the Labour Party won't, and I'm not going to pin my hopes on them doing it. Yeah, thanks for that. And I think there are some, I guess perhaps if I step through um, those points a few of those points. The first one just about whether or not there is a dominant strategy going to the Greens. Certainly I'm not, um, I don't mean to imply that there's some kind of like concerted, you know, um, conspiracy amongst the, you know, the left council that's directing energies. It's That is my observation of where the dominant energy is. Um, you're right, there's a lot of institutions, and especially moribund ones, that are affiliated with Labour. But I think even if you take that point aside, um, that I, I would frame the question as, is, you know, do we need a strong left Labour Party to be able to achieve um, the changes that we are advocating for on the left? But I think, you know, the, you know, you make some very strong points about, I think there's two of them there, is one is, as I take you to be saying, that maybe we do need, you know, a strong left party that's able to command a majority of support, but does that need to be the Labour Party? And secondly, related to that is this question, is this um the idea that the Labour Party is um, a lost cause. And I guess if I start with that one, you know, certainly I, you know, and my piece is full of criticism of the Labour Party and full of praise of the Green Party. Um, and by no means do I attend this as an attack on um, the people in the Green Party um, who have put, in, you know, their soul into achieving the changes changes we need. Um, I think it's, and clearly right now, the Labour Party is captured by, you know, um, cronies, um, by people who, you know, are centrist in the worst sense of the word. Um, and um, right now the balance of power is such that the party membership, which is certainly far more left than the um, than the caucus and especially the leadership, um, isn't powerful enough to be able to hold that leadership to account in a meaningful way, right? So, the, so the, obviously this project is about shifting that and there is a very long history of people trying to do that and and not succeeding definitely and you know i um i've been reading recently that jim anderton biography um by david grant that came out last year which has been really interesting because obviously you know jim anderton long-time labor man ends up leaving labor in the late 80s over rogenomics forms new labor then the then that feeds into the alliance and then the progressives right and it's been so interesting reading about that period, you know, that long period during the late 80s when um, the Rogenomics regime is being implemented against the wishes of the part, Labour Party memberships, pretty much all the public except the wealthy and the business community. Um, and there's just the accountability mechanisms break down. There's a total coup within the party. Um, and yet it takes until the very late 80s for Jim Anderton to leave. Um, but then also within the party, um, it's interesting the reflections of people like you know Pat Kelly, the you know, Helen Kelly's father, like staunch trade unionist, you know properly leftist character, Sonia Davies, um, you know legendary figure on Labour, who were very critical, but who could who couldn't countenance leaving the party, um, not because it was purely a matter of principle, but because they saw that even in that moment where like things are totally broken down, that their view was in the longer term, the left would be weaker if the Labour Party was abandoned. And I guess I bring that up because I think um, uh, it is a very difficult strategic question. Um, but also I think it speaks to the fact that like 
the fortunes of the party and the relative distribution of power from the party has changed and continues to change over time. And the last kind of 10 years, 20 years, 30 years have been a period where um, the membership um, and those on the left haven't wielded much power within the Labour Party. Um, and I think in part because for good historical reasons, um, many of those people have gone elsewhere. Um, and I think that's that poses a challenge um, that needs that needs that we need need to work through. But I guess like if it's the case that Labour is a hopeless cause, which I guess I don't think it is, um, to me that's I guess a very like a devastating conclusion because I think with unless there's a majoritarian left party, I just don't think we can do it. Then there's the alternative, which is can the Green Party be that? And it's entirely, you know, f- the future's open, right? Like who knows, parties rise and fall, and it's um, entirely possible that the Greens one day become the mass party. But I think like if we uh, take a sober look at it now, I just think that's pretty unlikely. You know, like the Greens have done well this election, um, but their peak results 2011 in terms of the bedrock of their support. You know, Labour obviously has a larger bedrock of support and strong connections to union movement, you know, um, working class electorates, etc. And so, you know, if if the Greens became that party, then great, that's that's problem solved. Um, but my my like most honest assessment of it personally is that the Labour Party is here to stay in some form, and that it's a problem for the left if that's going to continue to be like a right flank party as it is now. So. I guess I'm going to, God forbid, use the phrase third way. Um, because <laughs> I absolutely agree that we need a little L Labour Party, that it we need a party of the unions, a party of working class interests. Um, I don't think the current Labour Party is it by any stretch of the imagination. And I also don't think it has to be the Greens. Like, I might be being a little heretical here, so I'm going to emphasise again, speaking as an individual... I don't think the Greens should become a majority party. I don't think we should be a 40% party because the Green perspective should always be pushing further into Green and progressive and left-wing ideas and the interconnectedness of all of those. I actually think, like... The fantasy is that we don't have major parties, that we have a true MMP system where we don't have these giant parties trying to juggle multiple interests. We don't have a national party, which is part farmer, part small uh, city business, part raving weirdo Christian fundamentalists. That's, That's not something you should have in a functioning MMP system. And so the fact we have this Labour Party, which is part unions, part um, urban centrists, part, I don't know, pick another faction, um, is actually a disservice to getting those left-wing voices out there. Like, I mean, also because I think if we actually split off and we actually put the union power into a union party, all of the urban centrists would suddenly go, wait, why don't I have a seat anymore? I was promised a seat (laughs) because they, it's the same with you know the teal deal and people like Vernon Tarver or, or parties like top going well we're gonna we're gonna stand up there for the voice of people who like the environment but also think capitalism is neat oh whoops two percent again fancy that so I think that I don't want the labor party to be a lost cause um if only because we clearly see 
how much inertia there is to overcome and getting a new party up unless you have a very charismatic already incumbent MP with an unassailable majority that doesn't travel with their party when they resign. And as I say, I know so many amazing, very left-wing people in the Labour Party. I just think until they can get over their institutional obsession with the idea that if they just prove to Business New Zealand that they can deliver lots of surpluses, then they'll get a pat on the head from Kirk Hope and that'll prove that they're real politicians and they deserve to be prime minister forever. They're not going to get past it. And that is something that, as someone who, as I say, have has been a Labour activist and who worked for Phil Goff's leader's office in 2009. Most you didn't have to admit that on the podcast, but I, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just that's, that's, that's some credentials. That's some credentials. Worst workplace of my life. Um, they have had every opportunity to do it. They've had every opportunity to understand that Kirk Hope is never going to pat them on the head and the business roundtable is never going to say, Gold Star Grant, you did the thing. And I just don't know how many more times they need capitalism to say, you're not allowed in our clubhouse. We hate you and we will call you communists no matter what you do. For Labour to go, hang on, maybe I should stop pandering to those people and actually reflect the voices of workers and the Labour movement. So, yeah. Just repeating myself a few times, I don't want them to be a lost yeah. cause, but I don't think a Chris Hipkins-led Labour Party with Grant Robertson as its finance spokesperson, given their record, is going to suddenly go, oh, wait, we could do this better and then we could still have jobs. Totally. Well, I totally agree with all of that, right? Like, um, you know, and I guess, I guess for me the question is, is you know, how, how does that change, right? Like how do we, how does how does the Labour Party change if, if you know, we're in agreement that... Um, there needs to be something like a better version of the Labour Party, whatever name that takes. Um, but I guess, you know, some people have responded, um, you know, well, that's a that's a Labour problem, not an us problem. But I guess, which is a fine way of, as a f- f- fine response, but I just, for me, the question is, what does the left do about it? Um, because if the party is dominated by, you know, these freaks and geeks, um, it's not going to change itself, right? And so I guess maybe the question for us to discuss is, well, you know, is it possible for that to happen through external pressure versus internal pressure? And I guess a few, some of the arguments I've heard um, from critics of my piece have been, I guess there's, there's two forms. There's one that's to, that says, well, um, the Greens can exert leverage through or can win what they want through coalition negotiations um, in the right circumstances, um, or that the Greens will influence the Labour from the outside by, you know, punishing them by doing doing well electorally. But I think that last one is perhaps in tension with, I think, the argument you make, Stephanie, about the need for the Greens to stay as like a radical flank. And certainly for me, that's what I see the Green Party is where it's most it can exert the most power ultimately is as a true left flank party um, that can hold a really radical line. And I guess the tension I see it right now is it's kind of, you know, the leadership of the Greens position themselves in the middle. You know, there's a lot of radical energy behind it, but then there's still this hope of being at the table in a kind of like, you know, quote unquote responsible way to to the to parts of the business community as well. And it kind of feels like it's trying to square the circle a little bit. But I'm not sure what your guys' thoughts on those two kind of ideas about how the Greens can influence I mean um, literally. Yeah, this has been a critique of mine, of ours on the podcast for the last six years about the Green Party and the political effectiveness. And I think 
a lot of that has changed during this election campaign in terms of what's possible or even plausible. I've never been happy with at the table um, in the way that it has been implemented by Green Party leadership, especially around things like in 2017, the budget responsibility rules, uh, which is was worse than what Labour would have been doing um, in some respects, but was similarly to Labour to, to show out the, the Green Party credentials to being committed to um, the, the business community. Um, and austerity politics, it didn't. It didn't help. Uh, you know, it didn't. It didn't move anything. It didn't move the Labour Party left. You know, over, over the, the six years where the Greens have worked with them, we always kind <laughs> of just um, hammering this point. Like, you need to be more oppositional. You need to be at least slightly antagonistic to the Labour Party if you're going to move the Overton window. And this during this campaign, you know, one and especially once Parliament. Um, wrapped up it was really good to see that shift like that was a very clear intentional strategic shift to being more oppositional with with labor and james shaw in his closing address even and you know shaw is someone that we've often referred to as being like on the right flank of the green party um and i think that's not an unfair characterization um, i'm not saying he's like a, a raving rabid neoliberal i'm not saying he's like a um a national party flunky or anything like that but he is more right-wing than the, the membership uh, base, by and large. But in his closing address to Parliament, he took aim directly at Labour for austerity and neoliberal um, business-focused politics. And I think that's part of what delivered the fantastic result for the Greens during this campaign. I think it was too too little too late. I've said probably for the last three years that I think the Greens could be a 20% party if, if Labour refused to shift. But... And, and I, so I think that the possibility of the Greens actually being able to pull Labour left is, is somewhat proven now, uh, given the campaign gone. Whether Labour actually acts on that or not is another thing. Um, I don't mind the idea of the Greens becoming a majoritarian party if it's just because Labour don't act. Like, if if the Greens continue to say, oh, we want this very, like, baseline wealth tax, you know, like, we want, like, a capital gains tax, you know, all these things which are, like, all over the world. We want these very standard, um, progressive but neoliberal policies. You know, they're still working within that framework by and large. Um, and Labour refuses to move at all. There is no reason why the Greens shouldn't just cannibalise that vote. The major challenge there is that because they've been acting as a almost a client party in some respects, and I, I don't mean that with with particular shade, but that's kind of how it operates in regards to getting uh, cabinet, uh, not cabinet positions, but ministerial positions, uh, while not acting uh, against Labour effectively, while Labour had been in government, not being uh, particularly antagonistic. It's meant they haven't had the opportunity to build their base and build their organising mechanisms uh, in a way that can compete with the major parties. And that's been an incredible problem for them on like just on a funding basis. Again, the selection, uh, they decided to run in more electorates. They decided to activate their communities. They got MPs or, or candidates involved like Tamatha Paul, who have like incredibly good records at activating communities and bringing people on board. And I think some of that was was proven um, during Swarbrick's uh, campaign in 2020. And so, okay, look, maybe we can do this. And now, you know, it's really fucking delivered. You're building that like local power, uh, which draws people in and gets them engaged and starts to build the power out beyond 
the caucus in Wellington because the 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 situation with green branches over the last decade has been fucking dire. Like they're very incredible people there doing incredible work and just not being able to have much effect um, and slowly seeing their funds diminish. Um, anyone who is on the Green Party mailing list uh, will have received the donations uh, emails, which I fucking hate and just feel kind of desperate. But it's because there's there's no money there, and that's by and large because they rely on a middle upper class kind of slight, soft left uh, environmentally conscious base uh, to tap for donations and for fundraising. As long as that's the case, as long as they don't have a broad based membership, they're going to be trapped mm-hmm. by that. Uh, so that's the real risk for me around the Greens trying to become a larger party and not even a majoritarian party, just larger than it currently is. They just don't have the capacity for it. Somewhere where I maybe agree with you, Ollie, is around Labour's current place in the political ecosystem. And I fucking hate that this is the case um, because, as you've said, Stephanie, the inability to move, the, the way it's become so moribund and uh, tied up in this institutional um, neoliberal imperative to to act in uh, among the leadership to act in ways that are ca- directly counter to the wishes of its membership just traps so much energy and capacity and like workers representation within this enormous machinery you know we talk about the fucking labor machine it's real um and it's impotent but in the current environment that's where a lot of the organizing power is and that fucking sucks, um, especially with the way that um, a bunch of unions still feed into it. Um, some of the biggest unions, I'll add, who are similarly moribund in some respects, uh, which we also hate to see. But they're not really getting anything for it. I would, I don't know how we do it, but if you could see a Labour flip somehow to being even slightly more progressive, doing doing the things that centre-left parties in other parts of the world do and already having that organization that um that amount of manpower available to it that was fantastic like that's what i want to see and what we yeah. probably see otherwise if activists leave the labor party um if we if they stop pushing for that is what's happened in the uk with keir starmer and that's fucking terrifying Mm-hmm. So I, I would note that, of course, Keir Starmer is wildly advantaged by operating in an FPP environment. So people genuinely don't have a choice, and I think that's something that we Absolutely. see here. Um, I'm also not I'm not hugely surprised that the Greens haven't got to twenty, just because I think there's a psychological inertia Absolutely. to overcome. There's a as long as we still have the Labour and National leaders get to have their own special debate. Yeah, it's a media thing. Aside, yeah, it, it reinforces the idea that Labour has to be the biggest. But I think depending on how badly they do and how well the Greens do as a vocal opposition, which with the the talent we've got from previous terms and the new talent we've got in, expect vocal opposition. I think if if the polls start flipping, then that could start getting it through yeah. people's minds that Labour doesn't have to default to being the biggest party. I just wanted to have two points on strategy. Um, so one, and and I highlighted this from your piece, Ollie. So talking about um, the Greens having these strategies, both of achieving change within Parliament, but also of influencing the the discourse. But then you you have this little line. Sorry, I'm going to quote you back at you. It's a very <laughs> thing to do uh-oh, to a writer. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, 
Talking about Zero Carbon Act Climate Change Commission, while the Greens no doubt influenced the shape of those policies, I mean, they were James Shaw's policies, so influence is a bit of a weak word. Their implementation came after Labour ran a climate-focused campaign of its own in 2017. Even if the Greens weren't at the table, climate change was going to be a focus of Ardern's government. Now, to me, that's proof that the Green strategy works. Like, Jacinda Ardern isn't putting climate change up there with nuclear-free moment and then not doing anything nuclear-free moment with it. If the Greens weren't there for all the years prior, like my ongoing joke about the Green Party is that the policies we put out today are going to be the policies everyone thinks is normal and why haven't we done this yet in 10 years' time? So I, I would argue that the strategy is by default working when we can at least get Jacinda to say that she cares about climate change, even if then Chris Hipkins comes along and pulls a lot of the funding. And my other thing was going to how we pull Labour leftwards from within and whether we do that or whether there's another project. I don't have a detailed breakdown in my head of this, but I have a sense that the amount of people and coordination and organization that it would take to get up into the leadership of those affiliate unions, to get onto those influential positions in branches, the amount of energy and strategy that would take would probably be better spent just forming a new party and going for 5% as a starting point, if not getting um, a charismatic safe seat from Labour to defect. Um, I, I just feel like it is... And again, speaking from having been within both those unions and Labour, having been at a Labour Party conference where it was made very clear that it didn't matter what any branch thought about anything because the it to vote on its own was going to go whichever way the two white men holding all the it to delegate votes wanted it to go. Um, and uh, mm, boy, uh, we do not have time for that rant. But it's so stacked against genuine grassroots activism, um, both in those larger unions and in the Labour Party, that I really think, um, and the difficulty, of course, going back to my first point, the left is just people, there isn't a hive mind. How do we get enough of those people around the table agreeing on a course of action is a whole other debate mm. um, and a whole other discussion. Um which is where, sadly, you know, fascism at least gets to go, look, we have a charismatic leader, everyone fall in line. But that's a terrible way to do politics. Um, totally. I just think that, yeah, I think it's on the people currently in the Labour Party, the people who have stuck there, the people who I know are left-wing, who have rationalised to themselves why Labour is the best vehicle to political action. I'm like, if you all need my help, then let me know what to do. But I'm not mm. going to jump back into that lion's den unless there is a real will to change. And that even goes back to fucking Rogernomics, right? The number of ceremonies I've been at for people getting their Labour Party life membership where they've been activists for 40, 50 years and they talk about the Rogernomics era and they say things like, but I stuck with the party because I wasn't going to let them have the name. And it's like, well, they took the name and they made it dog shit. And you kept putting their leaflets in people's mailboxes. Do you think that maybe if we had a time machine and actually all of those true lefties had gone, yeah, nah, we're with Jim, we're out of here, a bit sooner that that could have had a devastating effect on neoliberal politics becoming the norm in Aotearoa? Yeah. 
I mean, it's such a tricky historical um, counterfactual, isn't it? And I think um, there's probably a whole podcast on, you know, the pathways of the 1980s. And, and as I said, that Jim Anderson book, I cannot recommend it highly enough um, because also just a reminder of just how atrocious um, like the whole neoliberal political project was, not just in terms of the policies, but how much of a coup it was. And, you know, the way in which they do a little bit and say, there'd be a huge pushback from everyone and say, oh, okay, well, here's our new manifesto for 1987. We're not going to sell off everything. And then they do it anyway, huge pushback, and then longing intervenes to say, oh, okay, let's just have a, we'll reach a compromise. If we're going to depart from the manifesto, we'll let you know, then you could give us feedback. Didn't matter, did it anyway. It was a total, um, it just, fills me with rage at these people like Richard Pribble, who are still respectable media figures. Like it's they had the, Ruth Rich, the, Ruth fucking Richardson on just, uh, mm. News Hub during the election campaign. It was yeah, they it destroyed lives. They destroyed lives. They destroyed the economy. They destroyed the public sector. It was brazen theft, just transfer of wealth um, upwards. Um, it is like it truly was a crime. Um, but it's still interesting that you know the um, how late it took for a. Um, a, the, a split party to form. Um, but anyway, as I said, it's a whole, whole different different um, topic and I won't divert us. I guess the um, one thing I, I just in terms of this discussion about uh, the Labour Party and whether it can change, you know, it, I guess it's useful looking at the history of the different waves that it's gone through. Like even within the period before neoliberalism, um, its membership waxed and waned hugely. You know, in the 1960s, people were calling it a moribund party. You know, even when Norman Kirk was the leader, the party itself wasn't particularly strong. And then I think it took till Jim Anderson came in. Um, and then the membership um, increased hugely through the 70s, 80s. It was pretty strong and then just totally plummeted halfway through um, um, the Rogenomics era. Um, and there's contests throughout all this time in terms of the rules, in terms of how democratic it is. Um, and contesting those institutions is, is I think, a part of the project. But I think, you know, you're totally right, Stephanie, that there are some great people still in the Labour Party. Um, there's some not great people. Um, but one interesting thing from, in terms of the response I've got to this, is that I've had a lot of response from people within the party that this is what they want, um, but from a lot of different quarters. And the sense I get is that actually there is, in a way, a nascent there's a potential for a nascent movement there, and I don't know if people are doing this, but, um, you know, there is energy there, and I think it's just a matter of political organisation, and, and I'm not sure it's as impossible as, as um, some people think. But I guess that the kind of key point, if I can just convey anything today, it's that if we're, like, serious about the, tra the transformational project, I think that can only be a majoritarian one. Like, I just don't think you can win a transformational agenda in, like, a mon mon minoritarian way through, like, concessions as a minority party from other parties if those parties are not on board with that agenda because of the fact that these policies involve taking on the powerful. And so the question is, is how do we as a left as a whole, whether that's the Greens and Labour or some other political formation, how do we convince the majority of people, people that the media class writes off as not interested in left-wing policies to, to support this agenda? Um, and it's totally possible because we know that most people actually like left-wing policies. They like high-quality universal public services. They like not having to worry about whether the planet's going to burn up. You know, this is popular stuff, um, but we do need to win a majority of support. Yeah, I think this is one of the really was one of the really frustrating things during the election campaign, as it felt as if and you know this will change over time as well. Um, but it felt like a 
one critique against the against the greens and maybe um is currently causing a cap um on the number of people who vote for them is that it felt people felt like they were not going to be able to implement their policies alone um which is which is fair um because labor had just ruled them all out i think you're right that i don't think it needs to be a majority party but it needs to be a majority of parties who have at least some underlying framework of what they see as things that they want to implement just just very basically if yeah. if labor had come out and said we will work with um you know the parties to our left uh, the party maori and and the green party to institute uh x kind of tax i think we might have seen something very different um you know if it, if it, mm. if it brought on fucking anything <laughs> instead yeah. of on nothing i think we would have but- seen something very different because it, it gives that that mass movement uh like that says oh look we can actually do something there's, there's a chance here but labor it felt like there wasn't a chance there like okay. like those policies that everyone supports like by pretty fucking large numbers some of these are up in the 60 and 70 percent of public support they didn't feel like labor would allow them to be delivered um and so people were just like fuck it time to put those screws on i'm voting for national or i'm voting for new zealand first because i just want to mm, fuck stuff mm. up which is so this, frustrating. This is one of my things where I, I constantly go on about how how fucking easy it would have been for Labour not to fuck this up. I didn't need Labour to have a wealth tax policy. I didn't need them to have a capital gains policy. I just needed Chris Hipkins to say when asked, what about the Greens wealth tax? Well, that's their policy. I'll be presenting mine and the way the votes go is going to determine. And, that's it. And the thing that so this is this is one of my little uniony anecdotes that I love to talk about is talking to when I was working for it was actually before it two was formed I worked for the EPMU and talking to mining delegates at one of our conferences and God it must have been around I'm terrible at remembering election which election year things happened in but 2011 or 2014 um, and. People, mining delegates from the West Coast saying to me, well, you know, we hate the Greens. They just want to stop all mining. They want to destroy our communities by ending the key industry. And I'm like, okay, yep, definitely need to work on some messaging there. And I think the Greens messaging has got a lot better since then. Um, But they would say, so I'm going to vote for National um, because I don't want the Greens calling all the shots. And I would say to them, well, why don't you vote tactically? If you vote for Labour, if it's going to be a Labour-led government and you're voting for Labour, then that alters who has the power in that government, as opposed to voting for National, who might just, quote, languish in opposition for three years. And that Labour has sucked at making that case. They have absolutely sucked at the idea of saying, we are the Labour Party, we're going to campaign on our policies, and we want people to vote for our policies. Obviously, we'll have to work with other parties, but the stronger you make us, because that's exactly what the Greens, that's what the Greens were saying in this election, which was clearly quite successful. Vote for us so we have more Green MPs to have more influence. Labour could have said, vote for us so we have more Labour MPs so that we have the most influence. That's all they had to do. But Labour leaders keep getting these little bees in their bonnet about the Greens actually having good policies that they make dumb statements like, oh, that's not going to happen as long as I'm leader of the Labour Party. And then they wonder why the overall electorate goes, well, there's no hope for a coherent progressive left-wing government then. At the same time, until the last election, they'll never fucking rule out Winston. Happy Mm. to 
walk weird tightropes about whether or not they'll work with New Zealand first for multiple election cycles now. Yeah. But as soon as it's a Green Party policy, no, it's a no. Actually, it's a no. And James Shaw trying to help Hipkins by saying Labour doesn't get to rule out other people's policies. It determine the voters get to determine whose policies take primacy. Like mm-hmm. handing them a Hail Mary and Chris Hipkins would not take it. Yeah. Ah! And we just come back totally. to that fact. Like the, the leadership of the Labour Party, the people making decisions there are not left wing. I'm sorry. They they're just not. They they are but they're also not strategic. Oh, they're I also idiots. Yeah. I don't really care if they're not red flag waving socialists yeah. i just they're not even doing the minimum to, to secure win. their own survival yeah they're not even well, doing third they, way politics yeah i just think that they just they do not believe in like mass politics they do not actually believe in they don't they don't believe in a you know majority in a style of politics really and i think they have this view of the pop population as kind of being rigid in their views fixed you know the centrists believe this um, and they don't believe in exhibiting political leadership to to try and achieve anything. But it's like, what's the point of being in the Labour Party unless you believe in fighting for a better future for people? So, hmm. totally, totally agree with that. And um, the Labour, if if that can't change, if that doesn't change within the Labour, then um, that's it's a big problem. I think it's a great place to leave it. I've said um, that we're meant to be doing shorter episodes for current events, but uh, we're going to fail at that that at least until the end of the year uh, when I start templating it effectively. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Um, This is so uh, good. Thanks, guys. Yeah, no, really appreciate you uh, coming on, Ollie. Um, And thanks for joining us again, Stephanie, uh, as well. Uh, Thank you to our audience. Uh, Been really great to have you here with us. Give us a share. Um, We are the only people talking about this stuff. So, (laughs) <laughs> tell other people uh no and one talking else about it well like high quality and yeah, incredibly quality. high quality incredibly high quality analysis and, and critique <laughs> um but yeah share it around uh get other people on board uh come come and join us on our social media channels uh hang out uh chat give us some some comments um and yeah start organizing as well we'll be back maybe in the midweek with some more um content but otherwise we'll catch you for current events next weekend. See you later. Our fists are denied. Living a pointless life, but I'm learning all your lessons. Fucking politics is no distinction. The words are now. It's paid with good intentions. And I'll admit that I'm at a loss for what to say when they quote this as a cost we ought to stay. Cause I live amongst the people every day. Forgetful fucking rain It feels like we're on the road to hell